that always stuns my students. Um, and when they read Romans 16 for the first time and see all the women in ministry in it, and they realize that women are in all of the leading ministry roles in Romans 16, I mean, it's just stunning to them. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how we move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, writers, in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We are your hosts, Kelly and Gary Allen, and welcome to Holy Heretics. Welcome back to Season 2 of Holy Heretics. I'm your co-host, Gary Allen, and I want to start today by saying thank you to our friends and Patreon supporters. If you've been following along in Season 2, you know we've had the opportunity to speak to some incredible experts, scholars, and activists, and that that's all because of you. So a special shout-out today to Lucas and Carly in New Mexico, to Lamira, to Brad, Karen, Janice in California, Aaron and Sarah, John and Deb in Michigan, Caitlin in Portland, Kylie, Kathleen, Matt, Megan, and Courtney in Arkansas, representing that Razorback Strong, uh, John, and and so many others who support our show on a regular basis. We we literally could not continue without you. So thank you. And I also want to ask our regular listeners, would you please consider supporting us on Patreon? Without your support, we don't have the funds necessary and needed to continue these conversations. So if you're interested, you can visit sophiasociety.org slash podcast and sign up today to support our work. And in so doing, you will receive premium content, early access to podcast releases, and our new online course, Making Sense of the Bible Post-Deconstruction. So thank you for considering that. And to our Patreon members and supporters, we are truly humbled by your support. All right, so let's get to the topic at hand. Now, I'm not sure if you have your ex-evangelical bingo card ready, but we're going to cross off yet another staple of evangelicalism today by deconstructing white evangelical patriarchy. We've already dismantled white supremacy, biblical inerrancy, purity culture, and the drive for political power that Together, all of these form the bedrock of evangelicalism. And now we're going to turn our attention once again to that final pillar of patriarchy and female submission. I'm sure you've noticed this already if you are in the deconstruction community, but white evangelical subculture is built on a system of ideas and beliefs that together form a domination system. They form a hierarchy where white males are in charge and everyone else finds their place underneath them. It's the reason why Theo bros like Denny Burke and Kevin DeYoung are so terrified of the shifting sands in evangelicalism, and they're terrified of the fact that we're waking up. We're realizing that we've been fed a, a series of lies, and they're afraid because they're going to lose their place at the top of the structure. Well, bless their hearts, we're going to continue to dismantle this substructure today by attacking that final pillar of patriarchy, misogyny, and male leadership, which assumes female submission both in the church and in the home. Uh, 
And and this backward belief relies on a, a very ignorant view of Scripture. Now, they call it a high view. I call it the worst view, the lowest view of Scripture, which is to read Scripture in a flat text in English, literally devoid of historical context and say, well, see, it says it right here in Timothy or Titus, and well, you have to obey this. Well, that's a very dominating way of reading the text. It's also a historical and anti-intellectual. And so today we're going to talk with Beth Allison Barr about a different way to approach even those texts of terror that seem to support patriarchy, we're going to begin to dismantle those by looking at history, by looking at theology, and by looking at a different way to actually read those words that are, quote, in plain English. So I hope you're ready for an incredible conversation with scholar and historian Beth Allison Barr as we begin to untangle our faith from patriarchy. She's the author of The Making of Biblical Womanhood. Beth is professor of history at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, and her research focuses on women and gender identity in medieval and early modern English sermons, drawing evidence especially from comparative analyses of biblical women, narrative women, gendered language, and the gendered nature of biblical text, including within sermons. So all things women, all things biblical, all things history, a woman after my own heart. So (laughs) Beth, uh, (laughs) thanks and welcome to the show. Thank you. It's good to be here. Beth, we are so excited to talk to you about your life and book. Um, It's great to connect again. It's always such a joy to talk to you. Um, This time around, I'm coming to the table uh, hosting a book club where we're going through your book with about 15 women, um, which creates some really fun conversations. Um, In my perspective, it it is also creating a ripple effect in in my life and the life of the, the women in the book club. But I'm curious for you, having done years and years and years of research and then publishing this book, what has been the ripple effect in your own life and in the life of the people around you? Hmm. Yes. Um, so let me just say that where I am today is not at all where I thought I would be in 2016, uh, mm-hmm. which is really when this journey kind of started. And when, um, and in fact, it wasn't until very late in 2018 that I even began to conceive of writing a book uh, like The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And then when I decided to write the book, um, my what I imagined at best case scenario was sort of a slow burner that mm. people would pick it up, you know, slowly over time and start reading. I would start get into the, um, you know, all of those sort of core books that people read on the issue of women in the church and that over time it would start to change the narrative. Um, so it was a great surprise to me when that is not what happened, that the book just launched you know, through the gates mm. and hasn't really slowed down since then. Um, this is still, this has been a, a really wild ride. Yeah. Um, and so the ripple effects, I think, of the book is that, um, you know, my thought of a slow burner, instead of that, people started reading it and passing it around um, almost immediately. And so I've started to already see change, which is Mm. just incredible. As a historian, we think about change 
is slow and it takes place slowly over time. Right. And so it's been really incredible to me to actually start to see change now. And, and that's, so that's been a ripple effect that I think is just been a lot of fun to watch. Um, it also has made my life um, certainly change course um, quickly. And some of the things that I've been doing at Baylor, I've had to sort of rethink um, how am I going to manage now that the book has become a part of my life hmm. and a part of my scholarly identity? And so I've had to sort of reframe what I thought I was going to be doing at Baylor for the next five or so years. Oh, wow. Um, you know, around because this book has become such a big part of who I am now. Wow. So it's had pretty tremendous effect on not just me and the people around me, but also on my job in a good way. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, you know, with my family, too. I mean, I think that um, you know, my husband jokes that I'm the only pastor's wife in Waco that everybody knows my name. <laughs> so, you know, he's like, you know, I can't go anywhere. All of his pastor's meetings and everything. He's like, everybody knows you. And so um, that so it certainly has it's it's changed a lot of things about our life. Hmm. Mm. So wow. so a lot of books like like yours will kind of have a crescendo. They get out. People talk about it. And then, you know, months later. Later, years later, they kind of die away. But as you said, you, your book continues to bubble to the surface. Um, I, I'm curious about it. Do you think it's because of, of some of the backlash from kind of the Theo bros? Because <laughs> like on Twitter, you yes. and Kristen Dumay are like the bad girls. Um, and, and it seems like there's a daily hot take from Denny Burke or someone of that society that is continuing to either subtweet about you and your work, or they're just trying to uh, d diminish your voice. Um, how has that fed in the popularity of the conversation, which in my opinion is really great? Yes. Um, you know, I, here's the thing. When our books first came out, and of course, there were several months between our books. And so it's mm -hmm. kind of interesting following the trajectory of both of them. And in the very beginning of Kristen's book, all of these people were not we're not talking about it. They were not paying attention to it. Mm. Um, and it wasn't until I think they suddenly realized that her book was not going away, that Jesus and John Wayne was just spreading and everyone was reading it. And that's when they started talking about it. And that's when they started going after Kristen. Mm. Um, that's around the same time that the making of biblical womanhood came out. Um, when, well, a little bit, you know, there's some time, but, and Kristen also endorsed the making of biblical womanhood and began tweeting about it before it actually came out. So I got on the radar of these guys earlier. Mm -hmm. um, and in fact, Denny Burke wrote his first bit about my book before it actually was published. Oh, wow. And so it got on. And so two things happened with that. First of all, I got associated with Kristen very early on. And then my book also got on, you know, these on the radar of the folk who were afraid of what Kristen's book was starting to do. Mm -hmm. And so even though our books are very different in all, in all sorts of ways, our books are very different, but they are going, they are um, damaging the power structures, right. the right. same power structures. Right. So I do think you are right that, that the backlash against it um, is part of what is as keeping it visible. Um, I think also the fact that 
so many people in just ordinary churches are picking up and reading our books, Mm -hmm. which is also really, and I don't know if that, you know, it's an interesting phenomenon. I don't know if that is um, also because of the backlash that people are getting interested in it, or if it is just because people are so, people know something is wrong in the evangelical world and they're looking to figure out why. And I think Kristen and I help with that. Like what is wrong? This this is what's wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These are some right. things that are wrong. So I I think maybe those things together. Um, I will say that every time, I mean, you just think they would learn from it. Every time they go after me, there's an uptick in my book sales. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it's just, it's sort of like, I mean, I told my husband, I was like, I was like, yeah, I was like, Denny Book went after me again. And Jeb was like, oh, how many, you know, how much did you jump up on Amazon? <laughs> I love that. That's <laughs> you amazing. Know, I mean, we're sort of, we're like, that's kind of, that's, that's what happens. Yeah. So there is, we do see that every time um, somebody goes after, yeah. you know, I do see that mm. it does have an uptick. Mm. So, wow, that's so interesting. And this is personal too, right? Like I, I know, and I, I want to get into, we're going to get into the nitty gritty of gender equality and, and how we can come up with that. Um, but this is also personal. If, if I understand your story from your book, um, you experienced being pushed out of your own church community where your husband, where your husband was pastoring um, due to your changing beliefs around women. So yes, this is a historical approach. Yes, this is theologically driven, but it's also really personal for you, correct? And yes, what was what what was that process like in in having to come face to face with this dominator version of religion that that didn't like the fact that you were questioning the status quo? Well, it was definitely not fun. Um, that was a very very hard time in our life. Um, the good thing about it is that. We it didn't ever cause us to question our faith. Hmm. Um, you know, people ask me that question all the time, and I think maybe because I was a historian, I very early on when I begin to sort of unravel what was going on, I began to, I I knew that it was connected to these power structures, and that um, you know I could see historically how they latched on to these ideas um, to continue the power structures to continue male, uh, really, you know, male authority within these spaces, as well as, you know, it's very much we can see it with World War One and World War Two and the push to get women out of men's jobs. That's also what's going on in the pulpit. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just so clearly connected historically. And so I think that always helped me to disassociate it from from God. And that, uh, you know, it was clearly a people problem. Mm. For me. And so I think that was that helped um, because I never had a crisis of faith. I just had a crisis of, um, you know, I just had a a life crisis, I suppose, and what we thought we were going to do for the next 10, 15 years suddenly just stopped. Mm. You know, we had Mm. a whole I mean, in some ways, I kind of describe people being pushed out of a church is almost it's like a divorce where it's, you know, you have to separate your um, your belongings from each other and you have to separate your identity from each other and you and suddenly your life, what you thought was going to be your life is no longer mm-hmm. what your life is going to be. And so it's um, it's a time of it cause it's a time of trauma. Um, I've heard from so many people who 
just reading my introduction just caused so much emotion for them because they experienced that too. Hmm. Because this is how these, this is how churches in these authoritarian structures, um, this is how they get rid of people. And so Mm -hmm. my story is so many people's story Hmm. um, who live in this system. So it was, it was hard. Uh, but it was also not completely unexpected. I'll say my husband, my husband knew exactly what was going to happen to us. <laughs> I was a little optimistic that surely they wouldn't do that. You know, I still remember that I was like, surely they're not going to do that. And so I was, I kept hoping that they would act better. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband had no illusions. Um, he knew exactly what was going to happen if we pushed the issue and he was right. And so I think that you know, both of us went through trauma, um, but at the same time, we we knew we knew the possible outcome, and we decided it was worth it. Mm. Wow, wow, good for you. Seriously, how have you maintained a relationship with the church? Maybe you aren't attending, maybe you are. I'm not sure, but I feel like a lot of people who go through that have such a hard time continuing on. What what has been your process there? So, you know, I mean, we're still we're still in ministry. My husband is now a pastor of a very small Baptist church. We sort of did an about face. We had been at a larger, wealthier church that had mostly middle class people who looked a lot like us, um, upper middle class folk, professional folk. Um, now we're at a very small, very poor, hmm. um, more rural church. A um, lot more challenges, different types of challenges. Um, so, in some ways, I think that. It's been that's been helpful for us, too, um, because we we know the church is bigger, that Mm -hmm. Christianity is bigger than um, than the place that we experience trauma. Uh, Hmm. We can see that bigger world. And we also know that we are needed. And, um, you know, the church where we serve, um, you know, they they need a pastor who can be Mm -hmm. there, who's not limited financially, you know, um, because they can't really pay, they can't pay people what is needed to Mm -hmm. keep folk who that is their primary source of income. So me having a a job too was very helpful. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's a whole different church. And so I think maybe that too helped us. Um, You know, I mean, I'm, we, we still miss, our community. We we yeah. haven't replaced our community in that same way. Um, so that's still a hole in our life, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing so openly. And that's one of the things I so appreciate about your book. It's not, I mean, history is so important and I'm learning more and more how important it is every day, but you're also really like, empathetically sharing about your experience. Um, one of the one of the stories I loved was when you're at the women's retreat. You were reading about the lives of medieval women um, who had these remarkable stories. Well, the other women were being taught that being a wife and a mother was the highest calling for a woman in the church. My question for you is, how do you reconcile that Christian women today have more constraints than in the medieval era? How do you reconcile that on an emotional level? Yeah. So, you know, I always tell people it's um, uh, it's not so much that we have more than they did then. It's just, we have different ones. There are Hmm. different constraints and the constraints on women today manifest differently than what happened, you know, in, in the, in the medieval world. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, but for me, it, 
I mean, I experience what I call historical whiplash all the time. Um, you know, a lot of my 25 years in ministry has been what I call historical whiplash, where I'm sitting in a church, listening to a sermon and knowing in my head that what they are sharing is actually completely historically inaccurate. <laughs> wow. But yet, you know, I have to keep, I have, I have to stay there. I can't like raise my hand and say, uh, I'm sorry. Um what time period are you talking about? You know, I can't do things like that in the middle of a sermon. <laughs> I wish you did, though. <laughs> <laughs> I, I tell you, I've had I've had moments. Um, and so it's so I've spent a lot of my I've spent a lot of my time in Christianity knowing that what pastors are being taught and trained doesn't actually reflect historical reality. Mm-hmm. And so I think that maybe has also helped me not have as much of a, you know, people who don't realize that, who really think, um, you know, it's when they all of a sudden find out that everything that they have learned is not exactly what happened. And it's just a completely jarring. It just, you know, changes everything for them. And they have a hard time viewing the church um, in the same way they had before. Whereas Mm -hmm. that's never really been my experience because I've always experienced this historical whiplash, um, I think. And so it kind of had, I have a, you know, my view of the church is that the church is flawed. It's always flawed because Mm -hmm. it's people. And so I, you know, I think maybe that's helped me. Um, I'm very pragmatic. Um, about what I expect <laughs> within mm-hmm. churches. And so anyway. have you seen the emotion of readers though, or, or your students who, who are responding from this like deeply oh. emotional place? Yes. Yes. I see it all the time. Mm. Um, you know, especially when the information is brand, I mean, they had no idea that, I mean, the people who had no idea there's a different way to read Paul, right. um, a way that, I mean, that, just, I mean, that always stuns my students. Mm-hmm. Um, and when they read Romans 16 for the first time and see all the women in ministry in it, and they realize that women are in all of the leading ministry roles in Romans 16, I mean, it's just stunning to them. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I do, I get to, I get to see that and I get to walk through with them um, why that happened. And so it's, and I hear it from readers all the time. You know, I get so many letters from people, um, who were just stunned, never knew that. Mm -hmm. And so it's, uh, the emotional outpouring I get in reader responses, um, is both really encouraging as well as heartbreaking. Mm. Yeah. Can can you? I, I know you've done this, but I also want don't want to assume that our readers have have heard this before and maybe have read your book yet. But can you give us that apologetic? Um, I know what in 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 a way that maybe for the first time someone could actually have quote a high view of scripture and still realize that women have full equal footing within the church because typically what we have been told through dominator voices is a cherry pick version of a verse here and a verse there and mm-hmm. it's very easy to be silenced uh, if if you're just starting your journey in this area and it's also very easy to not have language to go oh well, well I guess I guess they're right I mean they're 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 throwing the bible at me 
Right. Can you help that that person who is just walking into who has known for years in their gut that this was wrong, that patriarchy is wrong, but they've never really had an apologetic for it through scripture? Yes. No. Um, yeah, I can do that for you quickly in two places. The first place is, of course, Romans 16. You know, it, that's always my starting point for people who are brand new to this issue, because what they have been taught is that what we call, um, you know, those texts of terror, which are the household codes in Paul, mm. women, um, you know, be silent. Uh, I'm sorry. Women are under the authority of their husbands. Um, women submit. And then also the uh, places in First Corinthians 14, as well as in Timothy that say women be silent. Women are not to have authority over men. Women are to ask their husbands at home. So those are sort of what we call the texts of terror. And um, when people, you know, the way that people are presented is they're said, the, for these reasons, women are not to be leaders in church. Um, there's variations in how they define that. But nonetheless, that's, you know, summing it up, not to be leaders. And women are not to hold positions where they teach men, mm. which is also why they're not supposed to be leaders. And I'm like, okay, well, let's just think about this. You know, if women, if that's what Paul is saying, then let's jump to Romans 16 and let's just read it. And if they have an ESV, I'm like, that's great. Let's read the ESV and then let's read the RSV or the NRSV or the NIV 2011. Um, let's just look at some different versions and put next to it. And what we find is that women are, a woman is called a deacon. And then we talk about that and we're like, well, who was Phoebe? Oh, you know, Phoebe was actually the person who was entrusted with Romans and she took Romans back. What does that mean? That means that she read Romans, mm. which means that she was the first preacher of Romans. Women are to be silent in church and ask their question, husband's questions at home. Well, how do we reconcile Phoebe, mm. who Paul authorized to go and do this? Here's the evidence right here. Um, then we get to Junia. Um, Junia is so problematic. They had to change her name to Junius to try to write her out <laughs> because she's, she's an apostle. I mean, yeah. we just cannot get around it. She's an apostle. Paul says that she was in Christ before him. Um, and that, I mean, I mean, in some ways it's almost him looking up to one of his leaders mm. who helped teach him in the church. I mean, that's what, that's the attitude we get with Junia. And so then we're like, oh, well, so a woman is named an apostle, in Romans 16, well, what does that mean for women are not to teach or hold authority over men? Some, you know, the, the two possibilities here is that, well, really three possibilities. Paul's contradicting himself. Mm -hmm. um, he's saying two different things. But then that, um, so, but that leads you to all sorts of other problems if Paul's contradicting himself, especially for people, you know, high authority, high view of scripture. Um, or Paul is... Um, or somebody added those verses in either way. Mm -hmm. Somebody's added stuff to the Bible. People who have a high view of scripture also have a problem with that. Right. right. Um, so then the only other option is maybe we are reading Paul wrong. Mm. Mm -hmm. Maybe there is. So where's the problem? Is the problem going to be with Junia and Phoebe? And that's what they have tried to do. You know, I mean, you see, I mean, you've either got to get rid of Phoebe and Junia or you have to realize you're misreading those texts of terror. Mm. There's really mm -hmm. no other option for people with a high view of scripture. Um, and so then if you're like, okay, so we try to misread Phoebe and Junia, and actually now most of them have backed off on it. You can't get around the fact that Phoebe's a deacon. You can't get around the fact that Junia is an apostle. So um, what they then try to do is kind of minimize what they're doing and try to explain it away. Right. Um, but then if we look back, we're 
were like, okay, so maybe the problems with how we're reading the texts of terror. So let's go back and look at those. And what you find when you actually look at those with his, a historical lens is that they are all historically contextualized. Right. It is not the same thing. Paul is not saying this. He's saying specific things to specific churches dealing with specific problems. Right. Um, and of course, the example I use in 1 Corinthians 14 is that Paul throughout all of Corinthians uses something we call the quotation method, where he quotes something from the Corinthian world and then essentially says, why are you doing that? Hmm. You know, that's not what we do. Um, this is also Jesus's teaching method. Um, you know, you heard this, but I tell you this. Mm -hmm. And so it's kind of what we see Paul doing. And in first, first Corinthians 14, um, hit this quotation. What we find is he says something. He says, um, women are to be silent in church. Um, if they have questions, they're to ask their husbands at home. Well, that phrase is a phrase that we can trace in Roman law. And in other Roman, and I mean, it's a, it's a very common phrase that we find quoted against Roman women. Mm. And so if we look at it, we say, what if Paul's quoting the Roman world? And then right after those verses and, and for 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35, what we find is that Paul says, wives, you know, women are to be silent in the churches. They're to ask their husbands questions at home. And then right after that, there's this little particle that's What? Or does the mm. word of God originate with you? Mm. And what we find is that Paul actually seems to be rebuking them for bringing in this Roman practice, which is telling women to be silent in the church, because Paul doesn't tell women to be silent in the church because he lets Phoebe and Junia speak. Yeah. So Love there that. we are real fast. Wow. Yeah, Thank perfect. you for that. Thank you for that. Well, and I, and I think of Jesus, too. I mean, it's... Even if you're going to misread Paul, you can't misread Jesus, right. who allowed Mary to sit at his feet, which is a euphemism for her becoming a disciple. Uh, the first post-Easter sermon is preached by a woman. Jesus allowed women to journey with him um, and become his disciples. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, e even if you're going to read Scripture on the basis level, and, and I would say it's actually not a high view of Scripture at all. I, I would actually say that that view is the lowest view of Scripture. Um, <laughs> you know, you, you still have to battle with Jesus when it comes to gender equality. And I, I just you're never going to win that argument, in my view. I would agree with that. You know, Jesus is a whole nother. When we bring Jesus into the picture with Paul, I mean, we just clearly see we cannot read those texts the way that we have been, been taught to read them, which is to put women always eternally under the authority of men. Yep. Mm -hmm. I... I have a problem, um, and I'm just going to voice this here, which is the the people who need to read your book probably aren't going to. Um, maybe that's too audacious to say, but I feel like you you even talk about having the courage to ask, "What if I'm wrong?" Um, to see to see progress, or to see you know the the conservative side listen, or what? How how do we get everybody to read this book? What do we? How how do we stop becoming so entrenched? Is my question. Just that's have my Denny problem. Burke just keep tweeting about it, right? <laughs> I mean, let's do yeah, that. There you go. Okay. Okay. Great. We'll get him on the podcast next. No. That actually is somewhat helpful. Yeah. You know, I wrote this book for people who already knew there was something wrong. Okay. And I didn't really think it would change the minds of people who are so entrenched. That's so fair. But what I have seen 
is that because of the backlash I've gotten, that people who otherwise wouldn't have picked it up are now like, why are they being so mean to this person? Mm. (laughs) And they're actually starting to pick it up. So I, and I've started to get like, I'm in fact, you know, my Twitter feed has a lot of people who say, Hey, I still am complimentarian, but I'm listening to you. And I think there's something, there's something wrong here. Um, I still espouse complementarianism, but I'm listening to you and I'm thankful for your voice. So I'm more optimistic now than I was when I first wrote the book that maybe the people who really need to hear it might hear it. Hmm. Um, Not all of them, not the people who are invested in the power structures. Right. They're never, Um, they're never going to. A lot of them aren't, although, you know, I would be... I've gotten people behind the scenes that have reached out to me that I never thought would Hmm. read my book. Wow. And so, I mean, there's, there's a moment here where people are just so sure that something, you know, something's wrong in their world Hmm. and they're trying to figure out why. Hmm. Um, And so, I mean, that just really gives me a lot of hope. Yeah. Um, so we'll see. So I don't know. I mean, I still, I think there's a lot of people who are afraid of my book. Um, there's a lot of people who are afraid to read it. I've gotten some women who have said, you know, I'm reading it, but if my husband found out, I have to read it in my car. If my husband found out, um, you know, that he would not be happy with me. So wow. I've gotten a lot of those too. I mean, and mm-hmm. that, but see, that just shouts all kinds of unhealthiness right there. I mean, if your if your husband is afraid, let's ban the book. Well, that that always works out very well as a historian, right? I mean, it, <laughs> it, it it does feel like though that there is something afoot. Um, there wouldn't be this much backlash from the powers that be if things weren't changing. I mean, I see the sand underneath them just crumbling day after day after day. Mm-hmm. Um, it, are are you seeing that as well? I mean, is this is this coming out of fear uh, from the complementarians and from the strict misogynists because they actually know that they're dead men walking? Yes, I, I tend to try to also have a more you know because this was my world for a really long time, mm. and. I, this has become not just part of these power structures, but it's become part of their identity. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Their faith is built on this. This is at the heart of their faith. And so I have to imagine that part of their fear, it's not for them. It's not just about, you know, oh my gosh, my, you know, I'm going to lose my position. I'm going to lose my power. I, it's also their faith is part of this. And so I have to, you know, if you have built your your whole entire faith identity on the reality of a gender hierarchy, that your faith does not work without that, then if you lose that, it you might lose your faith. Mm. And so I think there's a lot of fear, both about the power part, but also about a fragile faith. Hmm. And so I try to, you know, think kindly towards some of these folk. It, it gets hard some days. Right. I, I feel very not kindly towards a lot of folk. Um, but at the same time, when your identity is threatened, um, it's hard. And mm-hmm. I think I think that's what the making of biblical womanhood has done. It's threatened a lot of people's identity. Hmm. So true in that 
in that threat of identity, I, my experience with um, being a woman in the church and pursuing ordination, there's just so much grief around how women yes. are still treated. What has been what has been your process with grief, or what would you say to both men and women who who grieve the state of the church and women? Yes, grief is certainly a part of this. Um, those are some of the hardest, hardest letters I get mm. are from women who told me that they felt called to ministry 10, 15, 20 years ago. And because of these systems, they they never pursued it. And now, now they realize that um, that their life could have been different. And and those are really hard letters to get. Mm-hmm. Um, to think about, you know, the people who realize what they have lost. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's one thing for a woman who is still young enough, early enough that she can make significant life changes when she feels called um, and be supported in some, you know, some areas to do that. Whereas there weren't those support systems, it, you know, for so many of these women so long ago. So grief, I, I mean, I have grief every time I think about what could the church have been mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. women were allowed to fill their callings, um, if the 1979 conservative resurgence, um, hadn't, hadn't been so effective, um, would our, I mean, how would that have changed things for 2016? I mean, mm-hmm. there's a lot of what if questions out there. Um, so that, that grief is real. That grief is hard. Um, I think it's important. And I think it's important to, to grieve what we have lost. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to, we have to realize that. I mean, I still grieve what I lost. Um, but at the same time, we also have to realize that, before there can be change, there has to be recognition of what is wrong. And so we're at this moment of recognition, mm-hmm. which means there's a moment to move forward differently. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, we have to think about who are who is going to benefit um, from this. And it's that next generation yeah. who can benefit. You know, it's it's my daughter who, when we moved out of that church and into a new church, she was only seven, young, still very formative. And now she does not remember not seeing women in the pulpit. Hmm. Mm, And that's, you know, the difference. I mean, it's not a question for her anymore. Um, She's just doesn't really understand why. I mean, to her, God calls everyone. Right. And, um, And so that, gives me hope that we can change this pretty quickly. Hmm. Um, you know, I know that that terrifies Denny Burke. That's one of the reasons why they're so loud against us is because they are one generation away yep. right. from this whole thing changing. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, and and I grieve too, it, literally the nature of the church. Um, I'm sure you've read Joan Chittister, but she talks about this, how the church has stood on one leg for so many centuries, and that that leg has been the male leg, and those male qualities of being utilitarian, of pragmatic, of metrics, of numbers, of domination, of uh, kind of conquering. I mean, that, that has been the DNA of the Western church for so long. 
And because we have excluded female bodies and female voices from leadership, we've, we've, we've shriveled the heart of the church. And I think that's a real thing to grieve as we look at church history. Um, Would we have been the forces of colonialism and imperialism and enslavement Mm -hmm. if women would have had an active voice? I I just don't think so. Um, So I think that's a whole other thing to grieve when we look at not only where we are today, but but all the sins and the and the wake of of evil that has followed the church, um, you know, for centuries. Right. Although I, I'm not going to let women completely off the hook here, because um, <laughs> part of the reason that patriarchy has been so success, successful in the Christian church is because women support it, yes. and women yeah. have been complicit in it. And right. one of the reasons women were in the in the white evangelical church is because of the racism Race. also embedded in our church. Um, And supporting those patriarchal structures, those patriarchal readings of the household code allowed white women to enslave black people. And so, um, you know, you always have to ask with patriarchy, uh, who benefits? Mm -hmm. And white women have benefited from it, too. And so I think that is um, something that we we have to it's if we were going to change you know, like colonialism, um, the white women moving into those spaces were just as imperialistic minded <laughs> as the white mm-hmm. men. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, racism is part of the story and mm-hmm. we cannot we cannot unravel one um, and not get, you know, we have to get rid of both of them for us to be successful. Mm-hmm. And so I think the white church really needs to recognize how much racism is embedded in this. And that part of the reason we supported patriarchal structures was so we could also maintain the racism. Hmm. Uh, So I'm not going to let my, you know, the, my peers. Yeah. Be (laughs) off the hook on this because we are part of the problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to listen to, but I appreciate it. And I think too there, Beth, we touched about that on this when we chatted last time, but I, you know, there's one thing for this to threaten patriarchy and males in power in the church or white women benefiting. But I would think I would say the thing that makes me even more uncomfortable is how difficult it is to have these conversations with women and then how quickly women kind of pit themselves against each other on, you know, in at least in the evangelical space, what is a better life? Being a godly wife and mother, or in my case, being single in the church, you're lower down on the the hierarchy. And there's this like battle between the women on on almost in circles. How do we get out of this? How do we, how do we all move forward and, and embrace, you know, patriarchy where all of us are benefiting and all of us are harming from this? Um, Yeah. What do we do? Well, I mean, I think part of it is um, white women is, have so bought in to this narrative, Um, you know, conservative white women, a lot of their identity has been built on this, you know, being married, Um, focusing their identity on being mothers and wives. And so, again, it's hard when somebody seems to come alongside them and say, that's actually not a calling or, I mean, that's not everyone's calling. Right. And so I think that, you know, sort of the idea that tends to diminish what they feel like they have been called to do. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's really important when we talk about this is that we are not diminishing Mm-hmm. what they have chosen to do. What we are simply saying is that that is not just because it's your calling. It's not everyone's calling. Mm-hmm. And so being really, I think we have to be um, 
uh, you know, we have to phrase it in a way and come at it in a way that it is not threatening. We're not saying that you can't do this. We're not saying all women have to, you know, it's hard in the U.S. to work full time and have children. Hmm. I mean, I experienced that. The U.S. system is not built to support women no, in careers. Right. And it is it is horrible. And there have been moments in my life where I have thought about just quitting and staying home just because hmm. it's so hard. Um, like, in fact, I'm remembering right now that I totally forgot to go home and feed my dogs today. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> and so my husband's going to be, so I know, and my children, so I'm like, oh, no. So, I mean, I, I that makes me feel, it's, I haven't forgotten to do that in a very, very long time. Um, so, anyway, it's hard. Right. We live in a world that doesn't make these things easy for us. So I understand women who, you know, are like, I really just want to um, raise my children and make sure I'm in their life. And I'm mm-hmm. like, I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, just don't say it's the only thing women are called to do. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think we have to be understanding and gracious. Um, and, you know, whenever women come at me, I'm much more sympathetic towards women than I am towards men. And so most of the yeah. women that come at me, my response, my response mostly is I totally understand where you're coming from. And I'm just really, you know, sorry. Um, and so I think that helps me being more, uh, you know, being able to re- relate to them and understand why. So I think maybe that approach, um, although it is also hard because women, you know, there have been some women that have been pretty nasty to me. Mm-hmm. Um, um, although a lot of them, I can, you know, like the transformed wife, um, you know, oh, that was God. actually, that was pretty funny. <laughs> I think she's a, I think she's a Russian bot. I, I just, oh, I don't think goodness. anyone can be that foolish. Uh, well, I, I don't know. I thought so too, but anyway, so that like oh. those, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's really funny. Bless your um, heart. Yeah. Yes. Yes. It's like, there's, I'm not, I'm not trying to change her. There's, right. n- there's, n- she's not going to ever, if she's a real person, she's not going to hear me. No, no, not at all. All right. So one, one last question and, and one last formal question. And, and I ask it with a little bit of trepidation because um, in many ways it mirrors a question that Kelly and I posed to our last guest, uh, Dante Stewart about race. Um, and, and I've, so I, how do I say this? So a lot of times white people go to black people and say, you know, basically help fix us when when really the real work you have to do yourself. Mm-hmm. And so when I ask you the question, you know, how can men join in this conversation? In some ways, I don't want it to sound like a scapegoat or I don't want it to sound like I'm passing the buck like, OK, you need to you need to provide the answer for me. And yet. I also know that the real work will will only happen and maybe come to fruition if if both sides join the party. If if men come to the table and use their voice and use their positions of power to bring about equity. So, what would you offer men like myself who already get that women should have an equal footing in all places, what are some practical things that we can do on, on, a, on a daily uh, perspective that can lend our voice and our power to creating a more equitable world when it comes to gender inclusion in the church and in the home? 
Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, I actually wrote a blog post a couple of weeks ago on a designing women episode. Mm. And in that blog post, one of the reason I wrote it was talking about my boss at Baylor, the dean of the graduate school. And I one of the reasons I was able to write The Making of Biblical Womanhood is because he believed and supported me. And so, I mean, when I think about men who come alongside and really help women, I think of people like him. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, one of the one of the things for men to realize is that sometimes you've got to get out of the way. I mean, white people need to realize this, too. Sometimes we've got to get out of the way that right. we that we are physically in the way of helping um, of helping others reach equality and and move forward in their lives. And so um, so white men, in some ways, I mean, they need to realize, like, say, you know, you're in a position where you can make leadership choices. Um, Some some you need to choose women, Mm -hmm. Uh, not always. But we've you've got to put women in front of men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I tell people the if you want to start changing things in churches, not only do you have to get people more personally on board and start having hard conversations, but you've also got to get women teaching. And so you've got to make a choice, you know, put a woman in a Sunday school class, maybe in a lieu of a man, ask a man to step out for a while and put a woman in there, mm-hmm. um, put women of running committees. Um, if women say no to you all the time in your churches, then maybe be like, what have I done to structure this position that is keeping women from wanting to be yeah. a part of it? Great point. And yeah, that's a lot. I mean, a lot of people, they're like, well, everybody says no. And I'm like, have you thought about why they say no? Mm-hmm. Um you know, are your meetings like at, you know, seven to nine o'clock um, every other Monday when a time when, when you know, I mean, like, have you thought about ways that you can change the structure that will make it more inviting for women to be a part of it and mm. to be in leadership? Um, so I think that is just learning to that your perspective is not the only perspective to view how things work from. Um, and I mean, that's me, too. I'm thinking about the question of race. Uh, you know, this is it's always good to look at it from another person's point of view. And so I think that is some, you know, what are the things that you can do in your life where maybe you can step back and put a woman forward? Mm. Um, and then also, I mean, part of it is just do do your work. Don't rely on women to do the work for you or women to fight for all of the positions themselves. Um, Do your own work. Read the hard things. Have initiate other men in the hard conversations Um, and, you know, take uh, I think doing doing that work yourself and then engaging other men in that work um, can be very helpful. Um, a very minor thing too is change how you talk. Hmm. Um, you know, language is important and it forms how we view, how we view other people and how we view things. So if when you talk about leadership and you talk about, um, you know, uh, people or examples of people in authority, if you always use male examples and you always use androcentric language, male-centered language, right. um, then what people see are men in those roles. But if you start telling stories with women in them and um, emphasize and make language, you know, not always androcentric, but uh, sometimes, women, you know, focus on women, then that changes how people view those things. I mean, there's a reason that the ESB tries to keep women out of the language, and it's because it changes 
how we view women's ability to lead. Hmm. Wow. You know, one of the things that, that I have done and, and I'm proud that my kids now do is we have normalized calling God she and her. Um, and I, I now realize that to some people that's, you know, heresy, but there are just as You are many... the holy heretics, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's that's the least heretical thing I do. Um but, you know, I think something like that is powerful, if nothing else, because it allows you to then identify when you do come across those verses and those metaphors and those analogies in Scripture where God is given female attributes. You're like, oh, how have I always missed that? Well, it's because mm-hmm. you've, you've used language that, that has allowed you to, to be blind to that. So, yeah, I think that's just a, a tiny way that, that we've done to just introduce that. So. Yes. I mean, yeah. And so, I mean, I think um, there's different ways that we can do this. And some of what you just pointed out, too, is just read scripture, read the parts that do emphasize women Mm. and do emphasize um, the maternal aspects of God and do emphasize, um, you know, how often Jesus sits and talks with women, not because they're sinners, but because they have faith. Mm. And that is the most common for, you know, Jesus always commends women for their faith. And yet we always talk about them from their sinful perspective. Um, You know, the woman at the well, you know, we focus on her adultery um, or what we consider to be. And we focus on um, the Samaritan woman. And, you know, I mean, we focus on the weaknesses of women, but Mm. yet Jesus always recognizes them for their faith, for their strength. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so just doing that and, and how we talk about women. Well, the, you know, the only person in scripture to ever win an argument with Jesus was the Syrophoenician yes. woman. It's a woman. <laughs> yes. and, and I'm convinced that he, he, he manipulated that to show his disciples like, oh, see, she bested me. Um, did you guys catch that? I, a woman outwitted me. Um, I don't know. I, I know there's a thousand different ways to read that, but I, I'm just so fascinated that the Pharisees never bested Jesus. The law, uh, the lawyers never bested Jesus. A woman outwitted him. And <laughs> I think that is beautiful. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, you. Um, I've written on that from the from medieval sermons, hmm. and that's actually the perspective we find. Wow. All right. So we said that was our last question and you got to go feed your dog. Um, but, <laughs> I do but, have to. <laughs> but, but would you would you mind if we ended with just some rapid fire questions just to get, you sure. know, just to know you a little bit better and whatever comes to mind, we'll go with that and, and we'll let you get home and feed your dog. <laughs> Amazing. The first rapid fire question is, if you were born in the medieval world, what would you have been like? What would your oh story God. be? My first thing is, I do not want to have been born. People ask me that all the time. And I'm like, oh, like they question. didn't have public, they didn't have bathrooms. <laughs> they didn't have heat. They didn't have, I'm like, please don't put me in the 14th century. Um, so if I had, you know, I tell most of my students that we, most of us would have been of the lower classes. Right. Um, you know, there was even fewer. And so, um, so my life would have been hard and um, I, but I think I still would have been very industrious. So I imagine that maybe I would have been one of those women who brewed beer on the side and sold it. Um, so, or something such as that. Fantastic. So, nice. I love that. Anyway. You, you wouldn't have been uh, Boudica, um, the, the lady who like, burned Rome and killed all the Romans uh, or, or burned London? 
I, you know, if I if I translate myself into thinking social class, et cetera, I'm not from an aristocratic family. <laughs> right. I'm not. I mean, that's not. I wouldn't have been. I don't think I would have had those those choices. Uh, maybe I would. I hope I wouldn't have been as annoying as Marjorie Kemp, as much as I like her. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness, I love that. I would have. I mean, I think I would have been. I think I would have gone on a lot of pilgrimages. Mm. I do think that if I, as much as I was able to. Okay. All right. Lighter question. Um, what's your favorite place to travel? Oh, gosh. So my favorite place outside of the U.S. is a little town. Well, it's, it's not a small, tiny town, but it's a town called Shrewsbury in um, the very west of England, almost mm. to the border of Wells. And it is there's a little coffee shop there that is in a 14th century building called the Bear Steps. Um, and that is like my favorite place to sit mm. there with my coffee, looking at St. Altman's Parish Church Aww. in the medieval square of Shrewsbury, Shropshire. So that is when I think about my happy spot, that is it. Um, wow. Where, Yeah. Mine's Dorset, just east of there. <laughs> yeah. Very good. Very yeah. good. Yeah. yeah. People are always surprised how much I know, you know, like people who are from Shropshire mm. and they're like, wait, you know where that is? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Um, I'm going to, just to respect time, ask one more question. What is something you haven't been asked before that you wish we had asked you? Oh, gosh. I'm not good at questions like that. Okay, I can have another one. I have another one locked and loaded. Are you ready? <laughs> sure. Sure, do the other okay, one. Okay, what historical woman should everyone know about? Where should we start reading? Who Who would it be? Uh, well, Christine de Pizan. You know, okay. I, I would start with Christine de Pizan. There's so much that's been written on her. There is so much that's accessible about her. Um, she's really easy for people to relate to, I think. And so I think she's a really good place to start. Um, yeah. Fantastic. Awesome. Hey, Beth, thank you for this. I, yeah. I yes. appreciate your accessibility. I appreciate your ability to intersect history and theology and your personal story in mm -hmm. elevating women and changing the conversation about gender in the church. So for those of us who want more from you, where can we find you online? And um, what are some other ways that we can join the work that you are doing? Yeah, so you can find me on Twitter and Instagram, um, Beth Allison Barr. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook, Beth Allison Barr, but I'm not there so much. Um, and I write uh, at least once a month, so often more on the Anxious Bench, um, nice. which is a religious history blog on um, Pathios. And there's a bunch of religious religious historians and we write on it um, every day. And I post at least um, once a month on Wednesdays and often more than that. So that's a place. Go read what I write and circulate it. Awesome. Fantastic. We will do that. And we would love to have you back on at some point to continue this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you, Thank you. This has been great. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Kelly Lamb and Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you want more resources to help your spiritual formation and your reconstruction journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, online courses, our free ebook, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.